Reclaim your power and learn to live your most amazing life with Mike Murphy Unfiltered Radio. Unfettered, unflinching, unafraid. Tune in every Thursday from noon to 2 Pacific Time on TransformationTalkRadio.com as Mike explores authentic and relevant truth and powerful conversations with some of the world's most renowned game changers. This hit show taps the dynamic principles of the creation frequency to unleash unlimited infinite potential and guide you to manifesting the highest possibilities of your heart. Level up your life and rewire your programming. Think new thoughts and create true freedom. Let's expand energy, build true health and explosive frequency consciousness together. Powerful people, powerful conversations, powerful listeners. Infinite possibilities, fostering peace and joy with an unfiltered heart. Now, here's Mike Murphy, Unfiltered. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Mike Murphy Unfiltered Show. I'm Mike Murphy. I'm so excited. We have such a special guest for you today. Her name is Marianne Williamson. She's a renowned spiritual teacher and author, but more importantly, a passionate American that sees the truth about what is wrong about America and expresses it so passionately and powerfully and delivers her message not arrogantly, but with humility and not filled with hate, but filled with love. And ladies and gentlemen, she's running for president in 2020. And I wanna tell you why I'm gonna support her with everything I have. I first heard her speak in 1983 in a small little church in Pleasant Hill, California, such a small church it doubled as a movie theater. <laughs> and uh, I bought every tape she had to sell. And I've listened to her speak for all these years, read most of her books. And when she got into the political arena in 2014 as an independent, I go, oh, you know, this is going to be painful for her. And I think she learned a lot about it. And then this morning, I spent the last few hours researching what she's up to, where she's going. And, you know, I left the United States. I moved to Columbia, South America, because I didn't see hope for this country. And if there is hope, I think it's in this woman's ability to communicate the truth with, with love and, and reverse where we're headed right now and turn it around. But it's not going to be easy. She's, she's a nobody in the political world, and she's going to need all of our support. So what we need right now is 28,000 more people to donate just $1. Go to her site, Marianne2020.com. Just donate one, that $1. All we need is $1. We need 28,000 more donors and then she'll be on the bigger stages and be able to get more exposure. So Marianne, thank you so much and welcome to the show. Well, thank you. And that was a very interesting story that you told, although I had to kind of chuckle to myself because most people don't think of going to Columbia, South America as the way to get away from the violence. But yes. you know, <clears throat> I hope it worked out well, but I'm glad you're back. Th that's how things have shifted, right? I mean, yeah. it's amazing, you know? Um, so in researching you this morning, I, and I, I've heard you speak so many times, you know, and told your life story so many times, and you're such a brilliant speaker and a brilliant mind, but you really, I heard you speak when you <coughs> announced your run for presidency, really talk about your father specifically and how you were having this difficult moment and your mom came in all compassionate and loving and your father did too. And then he shifted. He said, okay, I'll get your butt out of bed and let's fix this. To explain about your parents and your upbringing. <coughs> My father. I always say he was like a cross between William Kunstler and Zorba the Greek. And some of your listeners probably don't know who William Kunstler was. He was a very well-known, very left-wing lawyer who had a lot to do with uh, defending some of the more famous anti-war clients during the, not, you know, during the 1960s. My father was a real magical character. Mm -hmm. He had grown up in poverty, in rather deep poverty. 
uh, immigrant parents had had to leave high school uh, because he was the only person who in his family who could get a job at that time. <clears throat> the depression years upon them went back to high school at 25, was able to uh, get educated, was able to uh, get into law school, became a lawyer. And he was just, um, he was just a man of very charismatic passions. And those passions were directed towards justice. And my mother was a traditional housewife, but as the years have gone by, I've given her a lot of the credit that I was too immature to know to give her when I was younger. Yeah, it's funny how we mature when we have kids of our own and start raising them. Yeah, <laughs> you don't really everything. know anything until 50, do you? <laughs> exactly right. When I was younger, I thought you didn't know anything until 40. <laughs> no, I actually don't know anything until 50. I hear you. So, Marianne, in, in that 2014 run, what, what did you learn? I had run because I thought <clears throat> that my knowledge of the of the issues was such that I knew I could hit the ground running as a congresswoman. What I vastly underestimated was the significance of the fact that I knew nothing about running political campaigns. Um, there was a man named Mike Dugan who wrote a play and there's a line I really relate to. He said, I laughed at who I should have listened to and I listened to who I should have laughed at. Hmm. It's um, in a way a political campaign is a pop-up business but it's very different. And there's the reality of a campaign, <clears throat> which is really exhilarating, where you're having really deep conversations with people about things that matter most. And then there's the dog and pony show. Right. And the 28,000 donors we have to get and the right. money you have to raise and all that stuff. So I look at my congressional race, and you know, when, when uh, Barack Obama ran for Congress the first time, he lost by 30 points to Bobby Rush. And that's true of so many people. That losing a congressional race is sort of like the political equivalent of the, the start of marriage, you know? <laughs> Oops, then there was that. <clears throat> but hopefully, uh, listen, you learn from failure as much as you learn from success. That's what I have learned. And I think the only thing you really um, should consider a failure is something you didn't learn from. So I couldn't be doing what I'm doing now had I not already done that. Uh, I read a book by Ray Dalio where he said, if you're going to live a meaningful life, you're going to fail at some point. If you fail, fail well. So I like, I like to think that was a, <clears throat> a, a failure that I, I, I did well. I learned. I, I feel I uh, left it with my dignity intact. People were... You know, I think people, it's funny, I think, and I see this in an individual lecture as well. If I say something that's off, people are alert. Is she going to admit that that was off? Um, or if I'm attacked, they're looking to see how you take the attack. People observe how you are in failure, just like they observe how you are in success. And it's part of what shows to other people and also to yourself who you are. Right. And one major shift that you've done this time is now instead of as an independent, you're running as a Democrat. And what about um, the staff around you? Have you hired better people or different people to run your campaign? How's that work? I've been a Democrat all my life, but I'm also very aware of the history of, of parties and, and uh, third parties, particularly over the course of American history. Political parties are not mentioned in the Constitution. And George Washington warned us about them. 
in his farewell address. And what he warned about is exactly what happened. He says it makes factions more important than ideas. <clears throat> so in our history, abolition came from the abolitionist party. Uh, women's suffrage came from the women's party. Even social security came from the socialist party. So when I ran for Congress, it felt like a principled position to run as an independent. Now I have to, even though I made it clear, I would caucus with Democrats and so forth. I saw myself as a kind of Bernie Sanders that way. First of all, it was a very naive thing to do because I don't know why I thought that the Democrats were gonna say, oh no, to that. But more than that, that was a different time. Today, the way things are now with Trump having been president for two years, I see political party issues as kind of like maybe a broken hand, broken leg. Whereas I see the agenda of this, this administration more like a bullet near the heart. So I wouldn't do anything. I wouldn't do anything to risk even taking 10 votes away from someone who could beat a Donald Trump in 2020, whether that nominee is me or anyone else. Gotcha. And I know, I believe you supported <coughs> Bernie Sanders in the last election, but I found it curious on your website, I think on your personal website this morning, I read where you wrote an open letter to Hillary Clinton. You know, as a woman, I'm sure you wanted a woman to succeed, but you really called her out on her connection with Wall Street, Big Pharma, and, you know, so I'm assuming that played a role in not supporting her. How do you see that? Because I've heard you speak about how these big corporations run the government, the government runs the people, and we've lost really our ability to be free and to make a difference in this system that we have right now. How yeah. do you say? I feel she should have read that open letter, <laughs> taking it seriously. Yeah. I feel that there is a difference between wealth and aristocracy. Wealth is <clears throat> people can get rich. That's good. There are a lot of very wealthy people in America who have created their wealth in very righteous ways. But there is a difference between wealth and aristocracy, meaning wealth means people made money. Making money is good. The problem in America is not that some people can make a lot of money. The problem is that far too many people don't even have a shot at it. That's exactly. what's wrong in America today. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> the difference between wealth and aristocracy is that wealth means people have money. Aristocracy means your government now uh, behaves in such a way as through policies to make it easier for people who already have a lot of money to make more money and harder for people who don't have any to even make it at all. That is what is wrong with our country today. So this is not about demonizing people. It's about recognizing the way systems have diverted <clears throat> our functioning away from democracy to aristocracy. <clears throat> you can call it a plutocracy or a corporatocracy, whatever you call it. It's the, the same thing we were repudiating in 1776. Mm -hmm. What we repudiated in 1776 was a system of government in which only a small group of people had easy access. Well, in, in Europe at that time, that was, they were the only ones who had access at all. They were the only ones who could, who could own land. They were the only ones who could be educated. They were the only ones who could create, create wealth. Everyone else was just basically a serf serving them. So we are now functioning in a way that through government policy, <clears throat> only a small group of Americans really have easy access to education, easy access to health care, and easy access to a lot of the economic opportunities that should be a level playing field and should belong to everyone. Yeah. I do not feel that a, a candidate or a candidacy that represents a better version of that is enough. Yeah. We, need, we need a serious disruption. We need a serious... Um, uh, intervention, really, because this has been going on for 40 years. And we need a, you know, Franklin Roosevelt called people who represent these kinds of ideas, economic royalists. Yeah. They've been, you know, this force has been with us 
from the beginnings of our country. <clears throat> but the traditional narrative is that Americans push back against capitalism when it overreaches. Mm -hmm. That's why we have child labor laws. Yeah. That's why we have unions. That's why we had Glass-Steagall. That's why we have antitrust laws. And our, I, I was brought up at a time when it was expected that corporations would have a sense of ethical and moral responsibility, <clears throat> not just a fiduciary responsibility to its stockholders, but also a moral responsibility, ethical responsibility to the people who work for the company, to the workers, to their, to their livelihood, to their, to their environment, to the environment around the business, to the community. And starting in the 80s, we, we all acquiesced to this system where only market forces untethered <clears throat> to any kind of ethical consideration should be seen as the organizing principle of our society, whether it's health insurance companies or, or big pharma or gun manufacturers or, or um, fossil fuel companies or defense contractors. Their, their short-term profit maximization is, has become the bottom line and that you, it, rather than humanitarian principles and rather than democracy itself. And we need to rise up as American people and elect people who not only know this, but are going to give it more than lip service and are going to actually make the changes that need to happen. Fantastic. You know, I, I have to tell you what happened to me in 2011. I had a tragic event in my life that just totally devastated, took the wind right out of my sails. And uh, in that devastation, I had a lot of time to start researching the truth. And it, you know, the truth about America and all these wars and, you know, the war on cancer, the war on drugs and how it's just a bunch of BS, frankly, because the people declaring the war are the ones doing the crime. And, and I said, I, I was going crazy. I started telling everybody in my family, we got to start a revolution. We got to change this. And then I turned around one day and nobody was there. So, so I started praying for a bunch of a leader. So, you know, hopefully some Navy <laughs> SEALs and Green Berets to lead us out of this mess. And, and so, Interestingly enough, I think our faith really resides in somebody like you that has the courage to step to the plate and address these concerns and then give practical solutions. So I applaud you for the courage. But I have to ask you, you know, the Trump thing, I think, opened the door for you. You know, he was the unconscious candidate. You know, he, he browbeat his way. And that was the only way he was going to get elected, frankly. I mean, he just browbeat those 17 Republicans and then did the same thing to Hillary. And he was elected, I believe, because we, the public, are so fearful of where we're headed that he won. So now you're the, you're the conscious candidate. You're the, you know, instead of fear and hate, you're bringing love and hope. So how do you see that playing out for you? Well, first of all, <clears throat> we have, we, we've got to stop this kind of political savior mentality. No one person is going to fix this. <clears throat> I see uh, Trump himself as an opportunistic infection. None of that agenda could have taken hold the way it did had there not been a weakened immune system. And that weakened immune system is every citizen when we allowed ourselves to become distracted from, from what was happening. And a lot of people, even in the transformational community, use this kind of counterfeit notion of spirituality as a justification for political, chronic political disengagement. Yeah. <clears throat> and it is an ersatz spirituality that would lead one to that because there is no serious spiritual or political path that gives any of us a pass on addressing the suffering of other sentient beings. And what we're talking about here is the suffering of people. You know, we're talking about huge multinational forces which make human suffering profit centers. It's, it's deeply immoral what has happened here. But, but I, I think the point is that no one person can fix that. 
And we know from the 60s, if you just make this a revolution led by soloists, they know how to handle getting rid of soloists. Right, this right. has got to be a song. <clears throat> this has got to be that you have your aha mic, I have my aha, everybody's listening to you. It's these ahas that happen and yeah. form a force field because that's what democracy is supposed to be. The founders put, in the, put, put power in the hands of you and me. And too many of us have not so much been disempowered, but abdicated our power. And you abdicate your power when you say, well, somebody else is handling that. You can't farm out your conscience. <clears throat> you can't say, especially in America, when you hear people say, well, I'm just one person, there's nothing I can do. When in right. fact, there's so much we can do. <laughs> so I think that uh, whether it's me or anyone else, we, we have got to have a change within ourselves. That's something much more fundamental than just electing them. It's gotta be a shift in how we see citizenship. And that we do see citizenship as an aspect of a well-lived life. Yeah. And that awakening has to happen in order for me to win. But more importantly than that, it has to happen and then stay there. You know, we have had the, we've had the, the habit of saying, on the left, by the way, the right doesn't make this mistake so much. <clears throat> on the left, we've had the habit of, okay, we'll get him elected and then we can go back to our lives. And actually, that's not true. You have to elect the person you want. And then, as I always say, I don't want to go to Washington and fight for you. I want to go to Washington and create with you. Because the forces that we have to, that are opposing democracy today, are at work in every city and in every state, yeah. not just federally. So I want to co-create. I want to do in Washington what other people need to do <clears throat> on state levels, on local levels, and inside our own hearts, right? Yeah. Because and the so, state has to be internal as well as external. Yeah. And what I hear you saying is it's all about integrity and morality and personal responsibility. You know, uh, someone said evil exists because good men do nothing. You know, Bonhoeffer said a righteous man lives for the next generation. And if we don't start doing this, ladies and gentlemen, we're not going to have a country like the United States anymore. I told Marianne earlier that, you know, as goes the United States, as goes the world, because we are the world leader, you know, and, and we are failing in that regard with all these crazy wars. What about the deep state, though? I mean, my concern for someone like you is you know you're going to get back there and let's say you do win and you know how much power do they have and how much power does a president really have to affect change other than a bully pulpit well the president has a lot of power to affect change because the president appoints a cabinet positions the president definitely has an, an agenda that he puts out to congress and to the people he has the bully pulpit and that's not nothing uh the president does not have a magic wand that's a good thing though where would we be today if the if the president we have today had a magic wand. We have three co-equal branches of government and that's as it should be. So uh, I, I think that some of the ways this, our, our, our president now has tried to wage almost dictatorial power, we don't want that in this country. But once again, the power source that too many of us have forgotten is the power of the citizen, the power of the people. So no, I can't go in there and fix everything overnight. As a matter of fact, based on some of the things you've already mentioned, I personally believe we have a good 20 year healing process in front of us. What I would like the American people to give me is the opportunity <clears throat> to open the door to that healing process, to do a, a real uh, chiropractic adjustment on our democracy, remind people and, and imbue our policies again with the major principles of American democracy, that all men are created equal, that God gave all men the unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and that governments exist to secure those rights. 
And then, of course, when Lincoln said, in addition to those lines from the Declaration of Independence, when Lincoln said that ours was to be a government of the people, by the people, for the people. We are now a government of a few of the people, by a few of the people, and for a few of the people, of the major multinational corporate conglomerates, uh, by the national <clears throat> multinational corporate conglomerates, and for the multinational corporate conglomerates. We have a situation where one major political party thinks that's a good idea. Mm. Well, the people who have hijacked that party. I'm not saying every Republican feels that way or every conservative feels that way. <clears throat> but that party has been, many the people most empowered within that party have sort of bought, look, you know, bought in hook, line, and sinker to this idea that unfettered market forces should organize our society, which has hijacked our value system. Right. Because when you were talking about morality and, and personal integrity, it has to be morality and personal integrity, not just as it relates to our individual behavior, but also as it relates to our national behavior. <clears throat> Selling the Saudis $100 billion in arms, knowing that that is being used for aerial support while they prosecute this, uh, this genocidal war on, um, on the Yemenis, tens of thousands have starved, including children. So we need to, to extend our sense. However, it's, the problem is not just that one major political party has bought into that hook, line, and sinker. We have a problem with the other major political party, too. <clears throat> and Democrats need to be able to look at this so that we can heal it and fix it and solve it. Too many times the Democratic Party, not everyone in the Democratic Party at all, but too many times major powers within the, even the Democratic Party have looked at the situation you and I have been talking about and been willing to address the pain on the periphery. But even they not willing to address and to challenge the underlying forces that make all that pain inevitable. And that's what I'm doing. And that's why I think people need to realize that just electing a Democrat isn't going to fix this. You need right. to elect one of the Democrats who, who you feel a Democrat would be a serious disruptor of the situation as it is. Marianne, so today with social media and all this stuff, you know, like here, I can do this radio show and, and, you know, everybody can get their little voice out there. Right. Um, but what I see, what frightens me is this censorship. You know, the fact that, you know, someone at Google or someone at Facebook, they're going to decide what gets published and what's, what's right, what's fake, what's real. How do you, how do you see that? <clears throat> I see it as very real. I see, I've seen it even in my campaign. This is starting to crack. This is starting to change. I, I think I mentioned to you, I'm going to have a very exciting announcement to make very shortly, but not quite yet. Um, but I have seen that um, <clears throat> there is an elite within the political establishment and the media who decides who they say is a credible candidate. So they call you a long, long shot, just make, and only because they say that are you made that way. And the truth of the matter is the Constitution says that in order to be uh, qualified to be the president, you have to have lived here for 14 years, you have to be 35 years and older, and you had to have been born here. The Constitution does not say you had to have been a congressman or a senator or a governor, um, because they were leaving it to every generation to determine for itself what skill set that generation feels is most necessary uh, to navigate the times in which it lives. So this is an embodiment, this is a microcosm of this failed aristocracy, this club that appoints itself gatekeeper, that decides, we'll tell you, even though <clears throat> the people that we're supposed to feel are the only ones qualified to take this car out of the ditch, are the people whose mindset is embedded in, in the very thing that brought us into this ditch. 
not to even mention the fact that somebody who thinks what two terms in Congress gives you the gravitas and the expertise to, to do this job obviously don't know what Congress people do all day. Right. So um, I see it. I've been in the middle of it. But at the same time, I'm also seeing it start to crack. Like I said, I have a big announcement to make soon. <clears throat> so it started to crack, but I've been experiencing it in the last few weeks and months. It's like when, when, when somebody on a mainstream television show talks about who's the candidate and doesn't mention me, I'm like, well, that actually is fake. So that's only one small piece. It's also why we don't adequately fight uh, climate change because of profits for, um, uh, for fossil fuel companies. We don't have gun safety laws that are appropriate because of profits for um, gun manufacturers. We don't have universal health care because of profits for, for health insurance companies and um, big pharma. And we don't wage peace uh, the way we should because of uh, defense uh, contractors. So I'm not, I'm not comparing those situations to what I've been going through trying to penetrate this field, but it is part of the same veiled aristocratic mentality by which a few people think that they have the right to determine basically the lives of not only millions of Americans, but what you were saying before, Mike, people all over the world. Right, right. A very wealthy guy once said, I don't care who makes the laws, let me control the money and I'll make the laws, right? And so we have $22 trillion in debt. We're going to pay uh, $389 billion, just an in interest on that debt this year. What's your position on the federal? I mean, why would, he, why would a solvent, sovereign government like the United States allow a bunch of private bankers to print our money, lend it to us and charge us interest? What's your position on the Federal Reserve? Well, the, the Federal Reserve, of course, <clears throat> is established by those bankers, and certainly I certainly believe it should be audited. Right. But the problem goes deeper even than that's just the mechanism by which it occurs. Once again, it's not the mechanism itself. Just calling it on the mechanism is not the issue. The issue is how undemocratic is a situation where only a few people are making those decisions to begin with. Whether you're talking about the debt or the deficit, those situations came about because of specific policies that were promulgated in order to protect this small group of people. I mean, when you're talking about bankers, hello, how much more central could you be <laughs> to the you know, financial and <clears throat> uh, corporate elite that sort of makes the world go round? Right. Uh, so at, at this point, I think we need to address the fact that bad decisions brought us here and good decisions will get us out of this mess. And it won't be immediate. We need to repeal the laws, the, the uh, tax cuts uh, that were in 2017, we had a $2 trillion um, uh, tax bill, 83% of every dollar goes to the very, very richest among us. And of course, the canard is, that's good because the money will trickle down from them and then it will lift all boats. Well, after 40 years, it's very clear. It not only didn't lift all boats, it left millions of people without even a life raft. Mm -hmm. And it has <clears throat> created tremendous wealth inequality, uh, left 40% uh, uh, percent of Americans uh, struggling just to make it. Going back to the policy changes, however, not only do we need to um, do we need to repeal those tax cuts, but we also need to stop with these ridiculous subsidies that we pay to those very entities that are already bringing in billions of dollars of profits. Right. Now, right. <clears throat> as you are well aware, I'm sure, uh, especially now, we will not be overturning Citizens United anytime soon, which is what really opened the floodgates. But Mike, you know, even with what you're saying, this stuff was happening even before Citizens United. So right. what Citizens United has done is made people realize how bad it is right. um, more than it has, you know, it's just become more overt. Right. This is not an um, 
<clears throat> this is not a covert takeover of the U.S. government that we're experiencing. It's an overt corporate takeover of the U.S. government. And the American people are the only, only antidote is a real rising up <clears throat> of the consciousness of the American people. You know, somebody told me the other day that in the health and wellness community, and I, he is a very um, uh, responsible person, but I don't know where he got these particular uh, this particular statistic, but he said that 49%, somebody had done some poll, and that only 49% of the people in the health and wellness community theoretically even voted in the last election. So I think something that you and I can, can really address is this idea among too many in the transformational world who feel that, who are disengaged. When right. I feel, I've always felt, Mike, we should be the biggest grown-ups in the room. Yeah. We are the last people who should be standing over on the periphery because <clears throat> if you know how one heart changes, you're the one who knows how to change the world. So exactly. that's why I'm so grateful to you, not just for my candidacy, but for for the fact that there is so much power here in the transformational field and the um, you know health and wellness. All of us who are studying, all that a country is, is a, is a is a group right. of individuals. And the right, same right. psychological and emotional processes that prevail within the journey of one person will prevail within the journey of this country. And that's why so much of my campaign is based on America getting real. We wow. have to get real. You don't get real and you don't change in your life until you get real. We have to address as a nation what we have to address as individuals when our life has gone off track. Where yes. are we and where are we not the people we say we are? Where are we and where are we not standing on the principles we say we believe in where yeah. do we and where do we not have a moral debt to pay and then yeah. things begin to change ladies and gentlemen we got to take a quick break i hope you're getting this and i hope this is resonating <clears throat> in you like it is in me how together we can really make a huge difference in this country and really save it in my opinion um in Marianne's great book, uh, Return to Love, she wrote a very special poem. And when we come back, I want to ask her about that poem, how it got attributed to Nelson Mandela, ended up in a famous movie, and I want to hear a little bit about that. So hope, I hope you stay with us, and we'll be right back. Are you looking for the perfect setting for your next workshop or retreat? At Spirit Fire Meditative Retreat Center, cultivating consciousness is what we do best. Our guests count on us to create an atmosphere that supports serenity and well-being. We lead from the heart and create space for the mind. Freshly prepared meals designed with local and organic ingredients, 95 acres of beautiful woods and pastures, and a facility built with green in mind. This is what you'll find at Spirit Fire. For more information, visit spiritfireretreatcenter.com. Love Living Radio Ignite Your Whole Being with Emily Perkins is a show for those looking to explore the sparkling magnificence of their inner selves. Tune in every second and fourth Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific as Emily sheds a radiant light of love on the beauty and power that resides within you. Discussing love in all its forms through conversations that provoke awareness, curiosity, and expansion, Emily shares the unlimited power of love. For more information or to listen to this show, visit lovelivingholistics.com. Are you ready to create a life you'll really love? Then you'll want to tune in to the hit show Life Design Radio from Adversity to Awesome with Susan DiLorenzo. Live each month on TransformationTalkRadio.com. No matter where you are in your adversity story, Life Design Radio has got you covered. Get ready to feel inspired, enlightened, and motivated. For more information about working with Susan, visit SusanDiLorenzo.com.
Are you ready for unfiltered gratitude, unfiltered frequency, and unfiltered creation? Then don't miss Mike Murphy Unfiltered on TransformationTalkRadio.com Thursday from 12 to 2 Pacific Time as Mike Murphy and a cast of powerful guests discuss and demonstrate the principles and practices of the creation frequency. Tune in to unleash the power of your mind. Open the immense energy of the heart to manifest an awesome life filled with true health, wealth, confidence, gratitude, and joy. Unfiltered truth and unfiltered frequency to uncover and let go of limiting beliefs and access your powerful intentions that resonate out into the universe with Mike Murphy Unfiltered. For more information on Mike and his work, visit his website at MikeMurphyUnfiltered.com. Did you know that all of the shows on the Transformation Radio Network are available as podcasts to stream or download? Really? Check us out. Go to TransformationRadio.fm. We have business shows, spiritual shows, energy healing shows, and pretty much everything in between. Something for everyone guaranteed to inspire, educate, and transform. We are transforming the world one listener at a time. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the Mike Murphy Unfiltered Show. We are so honored to have a special guest with us today, Marianne Williamson, who's running for president in 2020. To learn more, go to Marianne2020.com. And she's addressed all the issues there, the, the who, why, what of who she is, what she is, and why she's doing this. And you can learn a lot. And I just hope you will support her like I'm going to support her because I really believe this is crucially important to the future, not only of our lives, but our children and our grandchildren. When I just left you, I mentioned the poem that Marianne wrote in her book, Return to Love. I just want to share it with you because it's my favorite uh, poem. I'll just give you the short version. It goes, our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that frightens us. And, you know, a lot of people uh, gave credit to Nelson Mandela for writing that, and he didn't. It was Marianne in her book. And it's also in the uh, Coach Carter movie, which uh, is where I first learned of it. So, Marianne, can you elaborate on that poem, what, what it means to you, especially in light of what you're doing right now? Well, first of all, it wasn't even written as a poem. It's just a paragraph among a lot of paragraphs in the personal power section of my book, A Return to Love. And the subtitle of Return to Love is Reflections on the Principles of A Course in Miracles. So that concept that we're more frightened of our, of our light than of our darkness is simply, once again, a reflection on a principle in A Course in Miracles. I have no idea. In all these years, no one has come up to me, no one, in all these years and said, you know, I'm the one who took that paragraph and then said it was Nelson Mandela. <laughs> I have no idea how it happened. <clears throat> Nelson Mandela's office has said he never used it. He never quoted it. Um, I'm grateful that it has meant so much to people. But I always feel like if you like the paragraph, you'd love the book. There are a lot of paragraphs in that book. So <clears throat> to me, it's um, it's a little bit of a mystery, actually. But that that book was a huge best. That book was a huge bestseller. I think it was 92 or 93. 92, A Return to Love. Yeah, like just amazing bestseller. So if you haven't read it, folks, I encourage you to get it and read it. Marianne is president. So the United States currently spends $611 billion in military <coughs> spending. China's second at $215 billion. We're 300% higher. In Russia, only $69 billion. As president, how would you address the military spending in this country? All right. First of all, 
theoretically for this year, it's going to be 718 billion. I think that what the American people need to realize is that our national defense agenda is not uh, is not run according to an agenda for peace in the world 50 or 100 years from now. You quoted Bonhoeffer the other a uh, few minutes ago, who said that no generation should live only for itself. Our economic system has nothing to do with planning for economic vibrancy 25 years from now. If it did, we would be taking much better care of our 10-year-olds today. And similarly, our national security agenda <clears throat> is not driven so much, if at all, really, uh, by an agenda for creation, but rather, once again, a short-term profit maximization for defense contractors. I'll give you an example. Um, our Air Force has ordered 100 airplanes called the B-21 Raiders. And the B-21 Raider is $550 million each, and each one carries both uh, conventional and uh, nuclear weapons. Now, you drop five of those, it's over for human civilization as we know it. You drop 10 of those, it's over for humanity for two or 300,000 years. Now, I have great respect for the U.S. military. My father was a soldier in World War II. I think we should all have great respect for the U.S. military. This is not a critique of them. This is a critique of the, <clears throat> the political forces that are making these decisions. Much of the military equipment that we buy is military equipment that the military didn't even ask for. So for every dollar <clears throat> in the United States that we spend on actual peace creation, we spend over $1,000 on, um, on, on, on preparedness for war. Now, we know we, we need an integrative holistic model of political healing, just like we need have moved to a holistic integrative model of medical healing. You can't just get medicine. You have to cultivate health. We can't just prepare for war. We have to wage peace. Even Donald Rumsfeld, who was George Bush's secretary of defense, said we must wage peace. And General Mattis, before he left the Defense Department, said, if you do not fully fund the State Department, I will need to buy more ammunition. <clears throat> because the State Department, uh, theoretically, has to do with humanitarian uh, processes and diplomatic ones. We know, Mike, the four things that actually wage peace, four factors which statistically, when they are present, I mean, excuse me, when they are present, cause a reduction in violence and an increase in peace, and they are. Nothing that's going to surprise anybody. Number one, greater uh, economic opportunities for women, number two, greater educational opportunities for children, <clears throat> number three, reduction of violence against women, and number four, the amelioration of unnecessary human suffering. We should see large groups of desperate people as a national security risk because desperate people do desperate things. Desperate people are more vulnerable to ideological capture by genuinely psychotic forces, whether it's a gang in a corner of the U.S. city or a terrorist organization in another corner of the world. Right now, once again, because of the money, because of the short-term profits, you know, those $550 million planes, 100 of them, that, it, it, they, they, they can drop nukes? That has nothing to do with planning peace uh, uh, 50 years from now. That has to do with the short-term uh, profit for the people who make the plane for the nuclear industry. Exactly. We're back to that same old problem, the money and the global <laughs> corporations. It's one, it, that is the cancer underlying all these cancers. And it will not change unless and until there's an awakening, you know, just like you awaken personally one aha at a time. We need to awaken politically one aha at a time and yeah. refuse to go to sleep, refuse to distract ourselves, refuse to consider this somebody else's business and elect the people who are willing to make the fundamental uh, changes, which, which represent a serious disruption 
of, of that kind of corruption because corruption is exactly what it is. Do you feel like I do for that to take place? Because it's so corrupt right now and it's so deep. The tentacles are so deep into everything in the government. Do you think the whole thing needs to break before we can usher no. in a new way of living? Number one, no, I absolutely do not. Number two, I think we really need to stay away from that kind of nihilism. The kind of, the level of human suffering that would accompany that scenario is should be is 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 absolutely unacceptable and unnecessary. Mike, it's the eleventh hour, but it's not midnight yet. Okay. Um, it's bad enough that we need to get quick about this, and we need to be real, and we need to we need to change. But it's 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 no. I, I believe cynicism is just an excuse for not helping. Yeah. And many people said that in Germany in the nineteen thirties. And um, how did that work out? Yeah, exactly. Well, I'm so grateful that you're saying that because. You know, I, I'm one of these guys, I get a little too emotional and I get carried away and, you know, and so, so I can look at that glass and sometimes see it half empty, not half full. And so that I said to you earlier, you know, because I, I understand. And I think one of the reasons I'm running for president is because I thought I can't just yell at, yell at television for two years. Right, We've got to right. do something. We've got to turn, you know, the American people are good and decent people, Mike. We're, we're, we're very decent people. The yeah. problem is not that there are more haters than lovers in America. The problem, by far, in a tiny group, but those who hate, hate with conviction. We need to love with conviction. Yeah, yeah. Amen. Those who hate don't just throw up their hands and go, well, we can never effectuate the changes we want. Man, right. those who hate, they, they get busy and they get effective and they create political force. Those of us who love must now create political force. It's not enough to just love our children or our lives or try to be more loving in our own private lives. We must uh, um, expand the circle of our compassion. And if you leave out politics, you're just leaving out the grit, uh, yeah. the dirt under the fingernails that is necessary for real change to happen. Well, and I think that's why when I watched your announcement speech this morning, I think it was about 20 minutes or so, and it just resonated with me so powerfully because you're not running from the problems and you're addressing them, but you're coming at them with love and you're coming at them with hope and you have the brilliance, uh, number one. I hope the audience is picking up on how well-versed you are on the issues. You have the brilliance, but you also have this magnificent way of communicating in a way that I think resonates with our hearts, right? We need to move out of here and into our hearts <laughs> and where we can just say, okay, enough is enough, ladies and gentlemen. We got to support someone that's got a big heart and a brilliant mind that can really affect change to save this country. And that's why I'm so excited to be able to support you. And I hope everybody listening and watching today will go to your website, marianne2020.com and, and check it out. Cause you know, I really do believe you and others like you that have this heart filled with love and this brilliant mind can really make things and the, and the courage, you have the courage to do it. I don't know where that comes from. Where does that come from? <clears throat> well, first of all, and you've been very kind and generous with the things that you said, I've just had 35 years of rehearsal, remember, and I hope that the community from which I professionally spring will join me in this effort, because all I'm doing is saying the same transformational principles that I and you and so many of us have been talking about for 30 years and just expanding it to apply it to the to the larger, larger community. In terms of courage, when you look at the courage displayed by women in so many parts of the world to even express themselves at a fraction of what I am able to do as an American woman. That's courage. 
that that's courage, that you could be stoned to death, that you could be tortured. There are places in this world where if I said a fraction of what I have even said to you on this program, I could be thrown in prison and tortured. And that is not an overstatement. So I think we need to really make the bar higher. Uh, American women are not porcelain dolls. You know, this is a traumatizing time. I admit that. But we need to realize those people who walked across the bridge at Selma, certainly they were traumatized, but they continued to walk. And those women who were thrown in jail for marching for the women to have the right to vote. And when they went on hunger strike because of the terrible conditions in the prison, the guards put these metal contraptions on their neck and to force feed them. This this is stress. That's anxiety. So we need to all be a little less precious. I appreciate the, I appreciate the, um, uh, the the kindness and the generosity you show, but also from the things you've said, you know how it really goes down in this world. Right. Americans need to to grow up a little bit here. Um, if it takes some courage to show up for your country, yeah. then show some courage. Yeah, we need that depression uh, generation to come back and show us some grit. I think. And also, one of the things I see in our community that's just pathetic, really, is this brand protection. Everybody, you know, I don't, I don't want to say anything that might make some of my customers not, um, really give me a break. Yeah. Or even someone like me, you know, that, you know, you try and sell books, but we don't take a position because we don't want people, you know, we don't want to affect that group or that group. How silly, right? I mean, if we're not true to ourselves, how can we be true to the world? And also conviction is a force multiplier. I think people, I think people respect conviction. Yeah. Yeah, it resonates. You know, living, living a meaningful life is not a popularity contest. Yeah. And I think exactly. particularly for women, there's such a deep-seated hope that you'll approve of me. And um, I, I always say if you're, if you're getting applause with everything you say, you're probably not saying the right stuff yet. Right, right. Let, let me ask you this, and I, I'm going to dive into some <laughs> controversial. So let, let me talk about this because you brought up Selma. And I know you have a position on reparations for the African-American community, which I agree with. But I think some people take it the wrong way, like you're going to give individuals checks. No, you want to rebuild that community, right? And I have a business in Oakland, so I'm passionate about rebuilding that community as well because I really believe that community was destroyed by our government officials and the deep state. So what is your plan for that? So I don't think the average American is a racist. I don't. But I do think the average American is vastly undereducated about the history of race in the United States partly because of what people learn in school. Um, Too many people think, well, we had a civil war and that ended slavery. And then we had a civil rights movement. So everything's cool. No, everything's not uh, cool, which is not to minimize uh, the efforts, sacrifices, and struggles of our ancestors. But this is what actually happened. There were four to five million slaves at the end of the civil war. And General Tecumseh Sherman promised that every uh, former slave family of four would receive 40 acres and a mule. We say that, but think about what that would have meant. You were a slave, so you certainly had a skill set. Hello. And, but now you're freed. But as Martin Luther King would say 100 years later, what were they freed to? They were going to have to have a way to make a living. So the old slave master wasn't going to turn around and give you a job. But if you had 40 acres and a mule, you could till your own soil and you could start over. Most of the cases that was not given, and even in the cases where it was given, in most of the cases it was taken away. The war was over in 1865. The federal troops remained in the South to ensure that slavery would not be reinstituted until 1877. At that time, once the federal troops left, the Southern legislatures began passing what were called the Black 
code laws. And they were to ensure subpar economic, social, and political opportunities for black people. That was led, excuse me, that thus began what was basically a reign of terror. There was a hundred years of what we would call today domestic terrorism. What is lynchings, if not domestic terrorism? <clears throat> what was the Ku Klux Klan, if not domestic terrorism? So by 1900, you have full-on institutionalized white supremacy and uh, segregation. And that was not responded to fundamentally until the civil rights movement in the 1960s. So with the civil rights law <clears throat> legislation in 1964, they dismantled segregation. And in 1965, the, civil, uh, the Voting Rights Act gave black people equal access to the polls. But two things. First of all, in 2013, the John Roberts-led Supreme Court started chipping away at the Voting Rights Act, which is what paved the way for all these voter suppression efforts all over the country even now. And we know who they're mainly aimed at. So the other issue is that not to minimize the things that were made better, I think you and I, everybody would agree, <clears throat> if you kick somebody to the ground, and certainly two and a half centuries of slavery is certainly kicking people to the ground. If you kick someone to the ground, you have a moral responsibility that has two parts to it. Number one, to stop kicking. And number two, to reach out your hand and say, here, let me help you get back up. Right. Economic restitution was never given, and over not only the hundred years after slavery, but even unto this day, there are all these systemic ways. When you you mentioned it a couple minutes ago, Mike, you said something about so you're hip to this. You know that even when black wealth started to be created, ways that cities and states would come in. It's almost like break it up. You're right. starting to make some money here, right. so we're going to put a highway through this neighborhood <clears throat> to make sure that you don't have a main street in this. Right. So there's so many ways. And of course, now we have mass incarceration. We have, we have uh, racial disparity and criminal sentencing. So since World War II, Germany has paid $89 billion to uh, Jewish organizations <clears> that can't make slavery, that can't make the Holocaust not have happened. But it's gone a far way towards achieving reconciliation between Germany and the Jews of Germany and the rest of Europe. In 1988, and I think a lot of Americans don't realize this, <clears throat> 1988, um, Ronald Reagan signed the American Civil Liberties Act by which every person who had been a prisoner during uh, in the Japanese internment camps, every surviving person was given between 20 and $22,000. So I propose a, a system of reparations uh, where, where the money is to be given to projects of economic and educational renewal. And there would be a chosen... Um, uh, board of, of Trustees, Reparations Council, uh, prominent black leaders, uh, scholars, etc., who would be entrusted. I think the money could be dispersed over a period of 20 years, let's say. Yeah. And um, it's not going to fix everything. It's not going to make slavery not have happened. But I think it will have not only tremendous economic force, it will have spiritual and moral force. Absolutely. Because it will bring healing to a community that definitely deserves it that has been shortchanged every step of the way you know i i think the founders got it wrong when they say that we're all uh, created equally no we're all born differently right different opportunities i was born white in america in the 50s for crying out loud you think i had a leg up on most of the world of course but we should all be treated equally and this is what we have to get to ladies and well, gentlemen 
the, the, I, I, I don't see it totally that way because creation is a different thing. We were created equal. Your creation is, from a spiritual perspective, deeper than your mortal incarnation. Right. So I think, I think the point of created equally, which is what gives it such moral force, is to say you might have been born white and privileged. Someone else might have been born black, brown, and not privileged, but you are created equal. The potential within you, the God-given potential within you, and your inalienable rights are equal based on the fact that we are all created in not only equally but as one so yeah. um uh, there's that's what what makes democracy so spiritually and morally profound not just as a political system but as a philosophical movement forward an evolutionary higher plateau of understanding yeah the only difference i would say is i'm, I'm speaking <clears throat> primarily like to the elite for example they're born elite so they think they own the world and they get to control the world and i'm saying hey no we're all born children of god and we should all be given the right to create the best version of ourselves and the best so version what that of means, so what that means is that you actually do agree with the founders <laughs> to a certain degree yes well, but, yeah but, i mean but, that's what they said now I, the fact that 41 of them were slave owners was exactly an issue but the, of those who wrote it yeah no, that is what. All right, so Marianne, we just have a couple minutes here. <clears throat> so, in closing, what what can we do to support you? What can we do to love you and and to oh, thank you. take care of you? Well, first of all, I'm so grateful to you for saying that. I'm so grateful to you for having me on your program. As you said before, if anybody goes to Marianne2020.com, so there's a twofold issue here. Sign up, be on the mailing list, uh, volunteer if if you feel moved. Um, that would be fabulous. Uh, I need 28,000 more, and I don't know how many more we'll need when somebody's watching this in right. some of the replays, um, but 65,000 total unique donations in order to make it onto the DNC debate stage when those debates start in June. And then, of course, you know, and we've raised, you know, I look at the money we've raised. We had the FEC filing uh, deadline last night. Now, to me, it's like a lot of money um, because all of that will be made public in, in a couple of uh, weeks. Uh, but, you know, compared to what the traditionals have, um, we start, we've raised enough money. Uh, we've raised enough money that, you know, we've raised over a million dollars. So we have enough money that we have two people in New Hampshire. We have two people in in. <laughs> In, in, in South Carolina, and I'm just thinking, oh, we're, 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 we're rolling. And then you see, yeah, well, they have 10 or 12 or 15 people, Miss Williamson. So, right. you know, we, we have an infrastructure. We're doing it. We're making it happen. The feeling on the ground is amazing. But if, it's like you said before, Mike, if we really want this to be a contender on the levels of the, of the, the material plane that we need it to be, got to get in there. Put it on your Facebook page. Put it on your Instagram. Talk about it. Get people to pay even one dollar. Follow me on Twitter. Retweet. You know, yes. this, 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 our community knows what to do All when right. we want to create buzz. So I got to, I got to, I got to wrap it up, but I will say I personally donate the max. I don't know if it's 2,700, 2,800. I signed up today to get text messages. So go to Marianne 2020, sign up for all this stuff. Please donate. Even if you just sign up, donate a dollar. We really need your support and let's support this woman all the way to the White House. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, and we'll see you next time. You've been listening to Mike Murphy, unfiltered, unfettered, unflinching, unafraid on TransformationTalkRadio.com. Thanks for tuning in, and don't miss the next unfiltered show next Thursday from noon to 2 Pacific time on TransformationTalkRadio.com as Mike Murphy and a cast of powerful guests strip away the veil of limitation using the groundbreaking practices of the creation frequency. Tune in to unleash the power of your mind.
Open the immense energy of the heart to manifest an awesome life filled with true health, wealth, confidence, gratitude, and joy. Unfiltered truth, unfiltered frequency, unfiltered possibilities on Mike Murphy Unfiltered Radio. For more information on Mike and his work, visit MikeMurphyUnfiltered.com.